This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, a Surrey hockey coach takes his players off the ice so they wouldn't have to suffer racial insults. So why did he get suspended? Plus, decriminalization backlash from Maple Ridge to Kamloops to Campbell River. Cities throughout BC push to ban the consumption of hard drugs in public places. And we speak to a local Surrey business that's aiming to create the longest charcuterie board in the world. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on our top story today. Surrey hockey parents today are wanting to see their kids coach return after he was let go in April. Brian McGilvery uh, coached the U11A1 hockey team where he and the team were enjoying a successful season. In February, uh, Mr. McGilvery was suspended for 30 days. Why? Well, apparently, parents believe it was because of a game at a tournament in Coquitlam. Mr. McGilvery's team has 15 players of South Asian heritage, and during the the game, um, it is alleged they were called monkey, the N-word, and banana by the opposing team. Now, Mr. McGilvery protested to the on-ice officials and tournament uh, safety officials, saying he didn't feel his players could safely return to the ice. Now, the Surrey team left the ice, resulting in a 30-day suspension of Coach McGilvery and the disqualification disqualification of the team uh, from the tournament. Now, despite numerous letters of support written by past and present families who have had Mr. McGilvery coach their sons or daughters, the parents of the uh, Surrey rep team believe it was this situation which led to Coach McGilvery being released from the Surrey Minor Hockey Association almost immediately after a suspension ended in late March. Joining me now to talk about this issue is Coach Brian McGilvery uh, from the U11A1 rep hockey team and Justin Saison, uh, assistant coach and father of uh, a player on that team. Uh, Brian, let me start with you first and foremost. Um, have you heard any any sort of information, any new information from the Surrey Minor Hockey Association? No, just uh, on April 25th, I received a uh, an email stating that um, they were going to go in a different direction and um, that my services were no longer needed. They thanked me for the two years that I coached there, and then that was that was all the communication. Uh, when the incident occurred in regards to those racial insults being stated, um, uh, can you just walk me through sort of, uh, was it something that built up to that moment, or was it just a case of these words being used throughout the, throughout the game? So um, I was on the we were on the bench coaching, mm-hmm. and and the game was um, is a comp- was a competitive hockey game, and one of our players, our best player, came and and said to me and the other coaches that that he was being called banana, and um, and then I, I wasn't too sure there was lots was going on, and then the, I let the other coaches know where they heard that, and then um, it got to the point where there was a whistle where our benches were adjoining. So we had gone as a coaching group. There's literally like three feet and just let the coaches know. And um, the coaches said that that was their code word for our player because he was our, their best player. Um, I stated to him along with the other coaches on our team that, you know, that's like not making them feel good. And 
I, I, I truly believe that there was no, uh, I don't think that he had any racial um, intention of, of being racist. Mm-hmm. I think that he, he, he made uh, an error in judgment and that it was just more ignorance than, um, than racism. But unfortunately, kids are kids, and it escalated from banana to those other words that you said. Mm-hmm. And um, there's kids on our team on the bench at this time that were crying. They didn't want to go back on the ice. And I went to the, as the head coach, I brought the other coaches in, and as a group we made the decision that this was unsafe just for their for the mental well-being at the very least. And um, after the, the officials were just young kids, uh, the tournament organ, tournament uh, committee, they weren't experienced with any of this. They weren't able to help. There was no resolution. But the one, the one thing that did come out is their coach apologized to our player and, and, and the, um, the parents of that player immediately. I think he just had a lapse in judgment. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that, hey, something's not right here. And he took responsibility, which I thought was very good of him to do. And so uh, the uh, after the first uh, word in regards to banana being uttered, it did escalate. So I want to clarify that to the other words that were used, which are monkey and the N-word. Yes. Now, that being said, I specifically did not hear a kid say that. Okay. I didn't even hear a kid say banana. But all the kids, they, they said that and... There was multiple. They told all the coaches and everything else. And, uh, you know, we, we as a group, um, we're obviously a very diverse group. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never, those kids, like, I, they never ever came to us and, and had said that to that extent, like, or anything like that before. So this is a first for me as a coach. It was, eh? Uh, we're also joined by Justin Saison. He's the assistant coach, and he, and, uh, he, has, uh, he is the father of a player on the team as well. And Mr. Saison, um, your thoughts on all of this? I mean, uh, how traumatic was it for the kids? you get a chance to talk to the kids afterwards? Uh, yeah, you know what? It was so hard being on the bench that day, just seeing the kids with tears in their eyes, not knowing, you know, how to handle the situation. Um, I stand with Brian. I think what we did was the right thing for the kids um, at the time. And, uh, yeah, it, it's something that they shouldn't have to go through. But, unfortunately, they, you know, racism exists to this day. And, and I think, you know, it was a good learning lesson for them that how to deal with these situations in life. Do you think, uh, Mr. Saison, there has to be a better protocol or um, process that when incidents like this occur, and and as Brian said, these are young kids who are refing, and, you know, they're not the ones who are going to be in charge here. But do you think there needs to be, like, I don't want to be adding extra rules here, but there has to be a protocol or process when stuff like this happens where, you know, you as coaches try to make the right decisions for your young players, uh, but the repercussions that have come from since then uh, looks like something has to be figured out here. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, I think who really let us down is BC Hockey. Um, you know, they had their investigation and still found Brian worthy of a 30-day suspension. You know, with all the context, context that they received, um, I, I think that they they have to get better policies in place. They need better education for the referees and for their staff on how to deal with these situations. Uh, Brian, what happens with you now? I mean, uh, how long have you been coaching or in and around the hockey world? So I started coaching in 1989. So this year was my 34th year as a coach. Mm-hmm. And part of that was uh, probably about seven years or so with my son, and then the other 27 as a non-parent coach. 
I, is this your livelihood? No, no, okay. no. That's it is not my livelihood. Okay, but you've been obviously committed, as you say, for thirty-four years to the sport. You love the game. Um, what do you want to see done moving forward? Well, well, moving forward, what I, what I would really like to see is is like Justin touched on BC hockey, not just painting a brush. I understand that there's rules in place and everything else, but this was to even they admitted themselves in our telephone um, uh, meeting with them that this is the first time they've ever encountered this. At, at the beginning, they suspended me indefinitely and it said this could be up over a year. And then they came back with an email saying they're doing me, essentially they're doing me a favor and just giving me 30 days. Um, that in itself, um, I think where, where it hit me is when I walked out of the building or I walked into the lobby after the game and I had two mums on my team right behind me and, and somebody, and I don't know if it was a parent from the other team or who it was, but they just made the comment, you guys are overreacting. And the two women were visibly crying and, and looked at him and said, you guys have never dealt with racism. You've never had anybody be racist towards you. And that's where it really hit me of educating and, and where we are. We live in a diverse world here. And it just, I think that just having that kind of a thought, we have to eliminate that. I think that there has to be an understanding of just going back to just mutual respect for everybody and where everybody comes from and and everything else. I think at the end of the day as well, what I would like to see is I would have liked to see Surrey Minor Hockey step up a little bit more and have the backing of us as coaches and us as a team and and being at the forefront. Now, the president did come on in our telephone interview, Mm -hmm. but he, he didn't. He didn't really stand up for us. He didn't stand up for, hey, this is not right. We shouldn't be get suspended. And again, I don't want to make this about me because it's not about me. It's a way bigger issue than hockey. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, um, those are the changes that I would like to see. But, and I'm sure Justin would agree with me. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, Mr. McGilvery, uh, and I get where you're coming from here, but at the end of the day, you, along with the other coaches, made the decision that for the for the safety of these kids, you decided to take them off the take them uh, out of the game uh, along with your other coaches. It, you haven't committed a crime here. Uh, I'm just trying to understand that process and protocol may be there, but at the end of the day, you did it for the right reason, which is the safety of these players. So why do you have a suspension? Why do you, at the end of the day, are you booted out for essentially looking out for young kids? who have obviously told you that they have been called monkey, the N-word, and banana. I mean, there's something fundamentally wrong when an individual like yourself, dedicated to hockey for 34 years, said, I'm taking these players off. You're experienced. Uh, For the safety of these kids, I'm taking them off. And you're telling me the hockey institution itself, um, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong, isn't there, when, when, when you don't have anything to apologize for here? Well, like like I said earlier, I think that they have a rule. And they, they have to update their rules. And I think that with rules, there's um, circumstances that they, they said themselves, and correct me, Justin, if I'm wrong, that they'd never had dealt with this before. So mm-hmm. um, they just painted us all with a brush, essentially me, because I was the head coach, and, and suspended me indefinitely, which got reduced to 30 days, which essentially ended the season. 
uh, Justin uh, uh, or, or Brian, what are the rules specifically here that you're not allowed to pull some uh, uh, walk away from a game? Is that the rule that uh, Mr. McGillfrey, yourself, or the coaches collectively, is that the rule that you've broken, that you're not supposed to walk away from a game? Yeah, there's a rule. I'm not sure what, what the rule is, but you're, you're not allowed to pull your team. But as as Justin and I said, that if if that we would do it every single time, like without hesitation, what we did, there's we would not, um, we would not change what we did. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, I appreciate both you gentlemen uh, joining me today. Uh, somewhere along the way, there has to be a, a rule for common sense. Uh, the rules may say you can't pull players off, but when you're concerned for their safety, it's a no-brainer. And as you have said, these kids were crying. Parents were crying, and you did the right thing. Uh, at this point, or Mr. McGilvery, are there any? Is there any attempt on the part of hockey, or are you are hoping from a phone call from them? Do you think this can be reversed in any way? You know what? I'm 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 leaving that up to the parents. I I, I I've like I've coached for a long time, and I've had a lot of really good people that I've met along the way, and this this parent group has supported me, myself and the rest of the coaches words can't describe how appreciative I am to them and and they've taken this upon themselves um and I'm just going to let this see where 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 things go from here and um you know I love the game of hockey and I want it to be I'm I'm sorry that I'm on talking about the game like this in this um this manner but uh hopefully that we can make changes just to to make the game better and I'm going to land on my feet wherever so um I'm more worried about how those uh, the kids were affected, impacted, and those parents of those kids, and Justin being one of those parents. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. You know yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, you know, I, as a parent, I have something that I can you know um, say to that too. You know, Brian um, was hockey second and um, character building first. Uh, as a parent, I saw my kid grow from you know a decent hockey player to a, to a you know, a, a great team player, but more importantly, he built good relationships. You know, he learned the hard work. Um, and I think Brian brought that out. And I think to not bring him back, especially after what he showed these kids is the right thing. I think that's a big mistake. Uh, Mr. McGilvery, Mr. Saison, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, by talking, you will make hockey better over the long term. I promise you. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Hey, welcome uh, back to the show. Uh, a Vancouver brewery is recalling cans of its orange cream beer due, uh, due to the presence of wild, unintended yeast. And now uh, the company, Superflux Beer Company, announced uh, in, a, uh, in a post uh, on Instagram that wild, unintended yeast is causing the beer, beer to re-ferment in the cans, which, depending on storage conditions, could pop at the seam uh, of the can at any time. Joining me to talk a little bit about this is Adam Henderson, co-founder of Superflux Beer Company. Adam, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jess. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed your post. So walk me through, uh, when did you realize this was happening? Uh, we realized we needed to recall the beer Monday uh, towards kind of through the day. We realized that there might have been a problem just through the, the, the previous couple of days. It's not totally unusual to have one or two cans of beer, uh, you know, where the can seam fails mm-hmm. now and then or have like some sort of weird storage condition where something won't pop. But it became clear that it was going to be widespread, and unfortunately, we'd have to recall all the cans. And then we 
we also have uh, we, we made quite a bit of this beer um, in the neighborhood of uh, about 5,000 liters. So we had two different batches and we had to do a little bit of testing to figure out if it might affect both because we wanted to be clear. Unfortunately, it did. So, And we want to be clear, this doesn't pose a health and safety threat, does it? It doesn't pose a health and safety health and safety threat. Uh, there's no like you know gastrointestinal problem or anything. I mean, there's yeast and whatever yeast this was. We actually believe probably came from orange juice that also should have been pasteurized. But um, yeah, it's uh, definitely a, a messy, sticky threat. And unfortunately, this happens to be a slightly sweet uh, orange colored beer. So it's not something we want our fans to have. Uh, have popping on them and you know in their car if they're uh, taking it from place to place or in their house so we really appreciate you guys helping us get the word out it's something that uh, you know it's just important to us to to own the the error we're trying to figure it out and we're obviously a little embarrassed but you know we've made uh, since we opened in august of 2020 we've brewed just under two million liters of beer at superflux and this is the first time we've had something like this happen so we're definitely a little bit embarrassed, but uh, hopefully it's, you know, with, with everybody's help, we're going to mitigate it. Yeah, and, and have you always, from day one, sold sort of soda-inspired beers? No, this is, we're, we're actually primarily known for IPA. Mm-hmm. Um, we make two IPAs year-round uh, called Color and Shape and Happiness. They're available very widely in the province. Um, this is a beer that's part of a rotating series, so we put out, you know, basically two beers that rotate in our season almost every month. Um, this was one of them. And unfortunately, we've made it before and never had a problem. And this was the time we just dis- we decided to distribute it widely across British Columbia, which makes this a little messier, um, <laughs> literally and figuratively. But yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, that's that's what happens. So. Yeah, it, it, I, I was uh, we, were, we were joking around at the office. What would you call an exploding beer? What name would you give it? So we, we, we haven't uh, nailed one down, but I may ask the audience to give us the name. But I do have to ask you, what's it? Uh, how is the uh, craft beer uh, market these days? I know we've done very well in this province in regards to you know helping grow the industry. What have the challenges been like you know during COVID and after COVID? Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, during COVID, it really depended on the makeup of your brewery. Um, I'm also involved on the board of the Brewers Guild, which represents the 220 members that we have in the province here. So we've got people who are really, really small local serving their community and don't can or distribute. And then there's people all the way up to, you know, like our largest craft brewery is Phillips and in the province. And, you know, they're they're widely distributed everywhere. So it's the the difficulties of COVID, you know, really depended if you packaged beer or if you depended on, you know, guests in your room, almost like a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, since COVID, what's what's been really interesting is just all the inflation that we've seen. I mean, for most people, like we've been in this business for uh, coming up on seven years. We Before we opened our brewery, we made beer uh, on a contract basis and almost nothing had changed in price, which was actually pretty remarkable when you think about what most people have experienced in the last, you know, 18 months. Um so that's what we're seeing now is a really big challenge, I think, for a lot of folks. And as some of the breweries are coming out of, uh, you know, all the all the COVID uh, life rafts that were extended to the hospitality industry, some of the loans that were available to some of the smaller businesses, as those things end and inflation's hitting, I think you're seeing, you know, a lot of our smaller members are having challenges. Big members, too. I mean, the price of cardboard's up, cans are up, grains up, mm-hmm. everything. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting time. But in general, we're very excited about summer. So this is an unfortunate time for us because we open our patio. We were going to do a big press release about that tomorrow. Uh, we, we seem to have a different media cycle right now. Everyone's very interested in this, which, again, we appreciate. But uh, 
summertime is always great for beer sales, so we're looking forward to that. And if customers did buy uh, directly from the brewery or even from a liquor store, uh, can they get a refund then? Absolutely. Like, I mean, we'll, we'll refund it, replace it. We, we stand behind all of our product, and that's part of what we're doing here is we, you know, we, we own it, and it's, it's something that uh, we don't want to see happen. And, you know, if you ever buy a beer from Superflux that you don't love, we'll give you your money back or replace it with something you will love. Uh, unfortunately, we'll be doing a bunch of that with this one right now. Uh, but, yeah, we've informed all of our store partners. We're widely distributed across the province. There's a list of those on our website. Also, if you know where you bought it, you can take it back. If you happen to be close to the brewery, we'll sort you out. I mean, actually, sorry, I should say, don't bring it back. Just, you know, if the cans are bulging, dump the beer, pour it out. Um, if it's cold, they're not bulging. You taste it, you open it, it tastes great. Feel free to enjoy it. We can still sort you out. But it's, uh, yeah, it's not something you want to put in your car, especially since we seem to have some nice unseasonably warm temperatures right now. Um, don't don't start traveling around with the cans of beer to prove it to us. We'll we'll figure it out and we'll make sure that you're covered. So wonderful. And Adam, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. And uh, you know, anytime a business gets ahead of the problem and owns up to it and uh, is uh, f- uh, you know uh, upfront with customers, that's very important as well. So really appreciate you uh, coming on and chatting with us today. Yeah, thanks, Jazz. We appreciate the help. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We spent a lot of time talking about decriminalization. Now, under the province's uh, pilot project that was announced a couple of months ago in January, a little more than a couple of months ago, actually, uh, in, ju- uh, in January of 2023, from January of 2023 to January of 2026, police will not make an arrest nor seize the drugs of adults in BC if they possess up to two and a half grams of uh, certain illegal drugs for personal use. So that could be heroin, morphine, fentanyl, crack, uh, powder cocaine, methamphetamine, and ecstasy. Now, across the province, many municipalities have been concerned about how this will impact their city and towns. Now, if you think about your poor city councilor, uh, city councilors across BC, well, they're, they're kind of stuck, if you think about it. Public health officials would will, would warn them that any drug use ban will increase stigma and, 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 and may harm drug users, while at the same time, taxpayers will tell them, look, we want to increase public order and safety for the wider community as well. Well, up this upcoming Monday, Maple Ridge City Councilor Ahmed Youssef um, uh, will be presenting a motion before Maple Ridge City Council. He joined us the other day to talk about that motion. He is proposing a new bylaw to ban open drug use in city parks and places where people gather. Now take a listen to his comments from a couple of days ago. I believe this is needed in Maple Ridge, and specifically the way I worded it was to address 
open drug use in city parks and outdoor gathering spaces because this is, these are the spaces that our children and youth are frequenting the most. And as we know, children and youth tend to model behaviors that they see. Normalizing this behavior and exposing them to hypodermic needles and glass pipes does not bode well for our futures as guardians and stewards of future generations mm-hmm. for their safety and ours. I believe it's pertinent that we do our part and as a municipal government, we only have control over our city parks and some of our outdoor gathering spaces where we can enact a bylaw to prohibit this kind of behavior. That is Maple Ridge Councillor Ahmed Youssef, who will be introducing his motion uh, on Monday. Now, he's not the only one uh, who has been concerned about um, open use of hard drugs in public places. Yesterday in Kamloops, a similar motion passed that was introduced by Katie Newstater. She is a Kamloops City Councillor, and she joins us now. Katie, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jez. Thanks for the opportunity to speak. So what uh, convinced you something like this was needed in Kamloops? What did you see? What did you hear? Well, we've seen and heard this mounting concern from our overall community over the past number of years. But decriminalization in particular was a really good catalyst for this conversation and for municipal governments to find our way into creating solutions and joining the partnership table that says this is what we need. The importance of creating safety and safe solutions for those who use drugs, but also for those who don't and addressing the concerns that we hear and see in our community that continue to mount. So what specifically uh, did your motion, uh, what, did, what did it say? We, uh, first, I brought a really broad motion that said no use of illicit drugs in public spaces. And again, the, the goal of that was to generate a provincial conversation, was to encourage other municipal governments to come to the table, pass similar bylaws, and spur this conversation forward. But even more than that, the ultimate goal is to build up the four pillars that make harm reduction successful. So next steps in enforcement, treatment and prevention that will begin to move the dial on this crisis that we're seeing right now and ensuring that we're not doing it at the expense of any one part of the population. This has to be a solution that works for everyone. There has been in the past talk about, well, you you know, the government, and that's provincial government and federal government with this pilot project that lasts three years and, as I said, started in in January, uh, January 31st, 2023 till January 31st, 2026, that they didn't put in the proper guardrails before they brought in this pilot project. Would you agree? Guardrails is the exact term that I started using when I I first began this conversation here in Kamloops. And so I absolutely agree. Um, I attended a workshop that was put on jointly between the Ministry and Interior Health right around the time that decriminalization came into play. And there was presentation of information. There was a lot of selling points. But none of the questions that were asked, really thoughtful, practical, common sense questions that were asked, were answered in any significant way that caused any kind of assurance or demonstrated that there there was any successful boundaries being put around this to make sure that unintended impacts didn't happen. Um, And then I started digging into it a little bit more deeply to understand how decriminalization was going to be successful. And I have yet to come up with a single thing that has been put in place as a guardrail. And where we see decriminalization being successful in other parts of the world, we do see that they limited where consumption of those substances could happen. We do see that treatment was put in place before. We do see that preventative measures as well as enforcement tactics were in place to 
make it successful. And so my primary concern is around that. How do we ensure that there aren't unintended impacts on our broader community, especially when we're already struggling? Are your constituents in Kamloops seeing people doing op- drugs in the open? I'm talking about hard drugs. Certainly. Certainly they are. Um, They were before decriminalization, and I think this just highlighted perhaps some of the reasons why this problem has continued to compound. But absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, that is a fairly normal occurrence that is happening right now. I certainly don't want, there shouldn't be a panic over this. It's not um, unavoidable, but it certainly is much more commonplace than it would have been in your childhood or mine. It is something that you encounter on a fairly regular basis. I was reading an article recently uh, on you know communities like yours. Uh, I think Sycamus uh, is either looking at mm-hmm. it or have, or have introduced something like this, Campbell River, and I said, uh, as I said, Maple Ridge. Uh, mm-hmm. Councillor Yusuf will be introducing this on on Monday. Um, is this a growing issue uh, in other communities in the interior in the north as well? It, it certainly is. I, if you ask any municipality across this province what they're experiencing, it may be to varying degrees. There may be different services available within those communities, but every community is experiencing these things to a degree that they've never seen before. And that's why it seems like a very common sense solution to begin with this. Where do we limit the impacts and how do we move people into safe places and ensure that the resources they need to use safely and then to be able to move into a continuum of treatment if that's what they're ready for, that that exists. It's the only way that we're going to begin curbing this problem. We cannot wait another six months. You know, we're losing almost seven British Columbians a day to this toxic drug crisis, to overdose. I am not willing to sit back and say, how many more people? People will die in the next six months while we fail to put the guardrails in place. How many more businesses will be impacted? How many more children will witness this? The time for action is now. We are seven years into this crisis. We need a change. Do you think this pilot project was a mistake? Um, that's, first of all, ab- above my pay grade. <laughs> um, but also, no, I... I'm a proponent of harm reduction. I've been writing about, educating about, um, being a voice for the need for harm reduction for years, way prior to being elected. It's a critical part of saving lives, quite literally saving lives. But again, it is only successful if all four pillars are held up. And you cannot sit on a one-legged chair and wonder why you're falling over. Mm -hmm. We have to build up those other three pillars to ensure that we have a safe platform that can be successful for what it's meant for. Uh, let's go to Kevin in Vancouver. Hi, Kevin. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, well, I, I agree with your guest. Uh, definitely, it's a multi-pronged approach, and uh, it's refreshing to hear uh, her refer to it, you know, the, the four four legs in a chair. Um, I think the thing that people are missing is that uh, these chemicals, uh, whether it's alcohol um, or heroin, um, if you're in a bad place, if you have mental health issues, if you've had uh, a tough life, whatever it may be, um, you're going to seek these things out and you're going to abuse them. And so whether or not they're illegal, um, whether or not we you know, let people do them uh, in safe injection sites, um, you have to have the mental health aspect. You have to have the support. Mm-hmm. And society, I think, needs to really prepare themselves for the massive investments that we need to do because mm-hmm. this is only the beginning. Kevin, thank you for your call and, thought, and your thoughtful comments uh, as well. Katie, 
you sometimes get, um, you know, we're all going to we're going to disagree on some of this stuff, whether it be decriminalization, mm-hmm. whether it be more money towards treatment. You sort of have that debate in, in Alberta to a certain degree as well. Uh, are you seeing um, any compassion fatigue from people where they just go, you know what, I have it enough. I think we just need to throw them in jail. We yeah. need to be tougher, more law and order, uh, all that, those types of things. Are, I mean, are you seeing some sort of compassion fatigue from the public as well? Yeah, certainly. And we've had people express that repeatedly. You know, we had a a resident in chambers a couple of weeks ago when I first brought forward the first iteration of this bylaw who spoke to exactly that, the desire to have compassion, but the exhaustion with it. And I think so much of that comes with only seeing it compound, not seeing solutions being presented and enacted uh, that are really leading to change. And that trajectory and the impacts of it are enormously discouraging. We hear that through the business community on a daily basis. And what we really need to do is be able to pull apart these issues so that we can sort them out. At the federal level, we need the end of catch and release. We need bail and reform to change so that crime can be treated as crime and vulnerable populations can be treated as vulnerable populations. Just like your caller just said very articulately there and very compassionately, we have to have trauma-informed measures so that this isn't just about short-term solutions, but this is about healing. And in the meantime, we have to have the treatment for people to begin funneling in and through. Uh, let's go to Rob in Vancouver. Hi, Rob. Oh, hi, Jess. Thanks for having me on. Um, I just I think it's a wonderful idea. Um, I feel that uh, children have very good memories, and once they see somebody overdose in a park and go into convulsions and be ill, mm-hmm. I think that'll break them of ever using drugs again in their life. Uh, I think that would cut it off right at the knees. You think people witnessing somebody going through an, an overdose is what you're saying? Well, I'm saying children have awfully good memories for traumatic things like that, and uh if they see somebody using uh, illegal drugs and immediately becoming very, very ill and possibly needing intervention, uh, having even more needles put into them, that tends to put kids off uh, drugs and needles pretty damn quickly. All right, Rob, thank you for your call. Uh, Katie, how, what has the reaction been in your community in regards to uh, this motion that you introduced? I think it has been generally very well received and people are just grateful to see these conversations happening, that they're happening still with compassion, um, with a well-rounded view. And, and it isn't just let's take people and, you know, remove them from society so that they can't be seen, knowing that the ultimate goal is actually to build solutions that support everyone. Uh, we've heard great encouragement from our community. They're pleased to hear the ongoing dialogue and that hopefully counts can be part of the solution and that goes for all municipalities across this province and you know we landed with this bylaw that we've passed now it was amended and it's a hundred meters within any park playground or sidewalk and to your last caller's point you know we have had children witnessing overdoses in front of our library right here in downtown Kamloops and that creates its own trauma and kids can't process something like that Mm -hmm. it is challenging enough for people who have been trained in the field um, to to process that kind of witnessing, let alone children. And so we need to create different circumstances. Katie, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure chatting with you. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Jess. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. 
Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Let's uh, chat a little bit about the uh, Surrey policing transition. I'm not even sure you can call it a transition yet. I think we've been just debating and discussing it for so long. As you know, uh, last week, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth uh, did make a binding decision, but he strongly suggests that Surrey continue its transition to a municipal police force, the Surrey Police Service. We learned also that from January to March of this year, Surrey has spent more than $20 million for the SPS in addition to the costs uh, for the RCMP. Now, um, the minister did say that the provincial government, specifically provincial taxpayers, let's call this what it is, are willing to put in $150 million over five years to help with that transition. And if uh, Surrey does decide to go with the Surrey Police Service, they also wouldn't have to pay uh, you know, $70 million in severance uh, to wind down the SPS. So just based on um, the SPS and sticking with the SPS and keeping that provincial money, that uh, there's almost $220 million that will be saved by Surrey taxpayers. That was a good time to chat with our good friend Frank Buchholz, who's a Surrey Now leader columnist. I just want to chat with him about what he's hearing in Surrey and the mood and mindset of, of, uh, of uh, residents there. Frank, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Jess. So what are you hearing since uh, uh, last week and everything that transpired on Friday? What kind of things are you hearing from residents? Well, I think most residents are not very happy that the drama is continuing. I think they were hoping that it would be some resolution one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, that isn't happening. And um, I think they're also somewhat confused because they're getting extremely mixed messages from politicians at various levels and, you know, even at the same level coming from different civic parties. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, they're saying, well, we know we're paying extra money for this. What are we getting for it? And what's the final resolution going to be? Mm-hmm. I find it interesting. On Friday, I, I decided to look at the Twitter account of all the uh, nine MLAs for Surrey, which are I think seven NDP, two BC United. Not one of them, not one of them mentioned this SPS announcement decision or their thoughts on it. It's, it, it's as if nobody, I mean, nobody wants to touch the issue. Nobody wants to be near it. Nobody wants to pick a side. It was quite fascinating for nine MLAs from two parties and nobody mentioned it. Yeah, that that is very interesting, and I think it's it definitely tells you part of the story right there. <laughs> it, it does. Um, your sense of the mayor, I mean, the mayor got elected uh, uh, based on uh, one stance, which is, uh, we're keeping the RCMP, come, we're just not going to change. We're going to stick with the RCMP. We're going to uh, wind down this transition. Do you think with the dollars the provincial government has promised and potentially maybe a few more dollars, uh, judging by what uh, Premier Eby um, uh, said uh, after the uh, press conference or after the announcement that there might be even more dollars, a few more dollars. Do you think that would convince Mayor Locke that perhaps uh, there might be a solution or a route to the SPS? Well, I think she's been pretty firm on the issue pretty well from the time she split from Doug McCallum, because as you know, she was part of his slate and voted for SPS at the 2018 inaugural meeting, as Mm -hmm. did every other member of council. Um, And um, I think what the way the government handled the announcement by giving her a heavily redacted copy with no advance uh, notice really of what the recommendation was going to be, 
I mean, I, I don't think that's a good way to win friends and influence people. No. And um, so I see at this point in time no evidence that she's likely to, to change her mind. The RCMP have said they can supply the personnel without raiding other police detachments. And as several members of her council have said, well, it's interesting. They said you can't take any RCMP officers from other detachments, but they said nothing about the SPC, SPS and where they're hiring their members from, which mm-hmm. could be from RCMP detachments or local municipal police forces. So there seems like there's a double standard. Can SPS continue to do what they're doing if the mayor says we're not giving you any more money? That's what, They've been doing that all the way along, and uh, the mayor basically and the council have little say because all the decisions are being made by the police board. The mayor's job is to write the checks. And I think that's been a real disappointment to a lot of Surrey residents because this thing was sold that there would be more local control, but the police board is appointed by the province. And uh, so there, you know, there's who's who's really in charge? Is the council in charge or is the police board in charge? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, how much longer can this go, though? I mean, I, I, if she digs in her heels, the mayor... Uh, What's to say that this, I mean, the city's still going to mention, and she's going to continue to say, it's ultimately our decision. Yes, he, the, the minister can recommend uh, a certain force. Uh, they may entice us with the dollars, but ultimately this is still our decision as council. And, and can the province, do you think, do anything about it? I think that they can't because they would have otherwise mm-hmm. uh, with the decision. And I think that explains a lot as to why those MLA's Twitter accounts were completely silent <laughs> on Friday, because they realize that if this issue continues to drag on and if the council ultimately does decide on the RCMP and there's this huge property tax increase to pay severance and all these other things, uh, that is going to rebound on the NDP MLA's in Surrey. And the interesting point on that is there's a lot of them. And if they were to lose a number of those seats, um, you know, that could impact their majority because at this point in time, it looks like they're going to win another majority government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I think the province could have done a way better job in handling this right from the beginning. And as we were talking last week, I said, I wish that they had said there should be a referendum way back when Mike Farnworth was first dealing with this. Yes. Instead of, uh, you know, saying, oh, we approve this. And I mean, it was clear even at that point, and you made the point really well when we were talking last week. And this was McCallum was just ramming this thing through. Mm-hmm. This wasn't a council decision. He was ramming it through, and there was no information being provided even to members of council, let alone to the public. And he could have at that point in time, I think, done a wise thing and said, yeah, we'll go with this if the people approve it in a referendum. It would have been way cheaper than all the stuff that's happened since. Yeah, I mean, not only uh, is Surrey dealing with this issue and continues to do so, it's expensive. Now you brought in BC taxpayers, and we heard from residents and callers here saying, you know, why am I tax dollars now paying for that transition as well? So, And then you've had uh, civic leaders. I think the mayor of Langley Township has spoken up. Uh, we had... Uh, 
Uh, Mr. Minhas from uh, New Westminster Council, uh, Daniel Fontaine as well, and others saying, wait a minute here, we've got policing challenges. How about some dollars this way? So inevitably, inevitably, this has almost become not just a region-wide issue, but a province, provincial issue yep, as well. It has, and I, I don't think it's been well handled at the, you know, right from the beginning. I think they could have done a much smoother job than they have done. Well, but, let's see how things transpire over the next uh, few weeks on this issue. Frank, always great to chat with you. Yeah, and look great forward to, to chat with you, Jess. Thanks so much for that. Who doesn't like a charcuterie board? The artful arrangement of meats, cheeses, and other items are always very popular. You only have to go on social media to see uh, how much people do love a good charcuterie board. In fact, I was looking at a, a website today uh, with the supermarket chain Kroger, um, and they were um, they had posted their food trends uh, for 2023. <laughs> One of them was the charcuterie board. People just love um, the way we can arrange food on those boards. They've been around for, I think, 600 years, it says, but they are very popular. Well, one South Surrey business wants to attempt to create the longest charcuterie board ever to officially break a Guinness World Record. Joining me now is Wes Levesque. He is the owner of Sheila's Catering. Uh, Wes, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jazz. Uh, happy to be on. Yeah, so tell me, uh, how did this, where did this idea come from? A lot of people ask me that, and honestly, I'm, I've always been somebody who has big ideas, uh-huh. and this is just kind of one of them that came to be, I think it was around 2019. We did an event called friends um, for the pier and uh, it was actually, sorry, it was chefs of the pier mm-hmm. and it was a fundraiser to help uh, fix the white rock pier that infamously broke in that big storm. Mm-hmm. So I think it just kind of gave me an idea of, okay, what else can I do uh, to raise, some awareness for uh, to fix this pier because there's still millions of dollars that need to be put into it. Um, you know, showcase White Rock, give back to the community, showcase my business. Mm-hmm. And I kind of came up with this idea. Um, of course, in 2020, the pandemic hit. So we kind of had to wait a little while to execute the event. But uh, now finally seems like a, a great time. So how will you and just give me a sense of um, just the uh, the logistics of this will be just one long board along that entire pier? So kind of. It's actually going to be 250 two foot boards that will all be connected together. Ah, okay. Okay. And is it just your business or are you getting other businesses involved as well with uh, with just <laughs> providing the food, putting it all together? Yeah, so I mean, um, it'll, it'll be a big collaboration. Um, you know, we're we're looking for sponsors right now. We've actually uh, been able to attract quite a few, which is great. So you know, we're looking at probably a lot of in-kind uh, donations for the food. Um, all the net proceeds are going to the Sources Food Bank, as well as Friends for the Pier and Semiam Rotary as well. So with with that in mind, we'll have lots of volunteers um, from those organizations helping us on the day of. Um, our staff will be making all the food, but, you know, I don't know if we'll be slicing all the meats and cutting all the cheeses that might uh, be provided by some of the donors and sponsors that we work with. Um, but it's, you know, if we do have to do that, it's a task that we're up to. We're up to. We, we've got the logistics for it. We've, you know, we're we're. We're a catering company that does some pretty big volume, so we're totally up to uh, doing it all ourselves if we have to. But on the day of, it's going to take a lot of people to pull it off. Absolutely. Now, so people will be purchasing tickets in regards to participating? That's right. So we're actually going to be selling 1,200 tickets. Um, There'll be different tiers. So we'll have a VIP level that will be all access. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll be on the pier at all times. And then we'll have three different tiers, which will basically be three different time frames. So everybody will get about an hour and a half to two hours on the pier to enjoy the charcuterie. Everyone's going to get their own little mini charcuterie board that they can take home. Mm. Uh, it's, you know, yeah, we're, we're trying to really give a lot of people a lot of cool little things to take away from this event because it's not every day that you get to experience a Guinness World Record breaking event and be a part of it. Any idea how much you want to raise at this point? Yeah, our target is $50,000 that we're hoping to raise. But, um, you know, I'm really hoping we, we can do more than that. And with just the amount of uh, press and uh, the reception we've gotten the last couple of days has given me a lot of confidence that we can we can go over that. It's been a really amazing reception so far. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to assume you're going to have other entertainment there as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we'll have um, we'll have different singers, different, uh, you know, performing arts going on. Uh, we're hoping to get a... Um, Indigenous welcome uh, and dance there with the First Nations. Um, we're also going to have a big community aspect in the Memorial Park. So with that, there'll be lots of different entertainment. And that'll be open to the public as well. Well, that is excellent. And so once again, that is planned, correct me if I'm wrong here, for September 2nd. Uh, and it'll be at the White Rock Pier. Tickets, uh, I'm going to assume you're going to start selling those in August sometime or July? Uh, no, we're actually going to go June 1st. Um, for the ticket sales. Um, so, you know, just hoping to keep the momentum going here of, uh, of our announcement. Mm-hmm. And uh, it'll give us just a lot of time to prepare and get everything ready. But, you know, why why wait? Just sell the tickets right away. We've gotten a, a ton of interest so far. We already have 650 plus that have um, signed up to our uh, newsletter on charcuterieonthepeer.com. Mm-hmm. So all those people will get uh, an extra day early access to tickets. But at this point, it looks like it's going to sell out pretty quick. So um, if you're listening out there and want to be a part of it, definitely go to that website and sign up for our newsletter. Wes, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's revisit uh, our top story uh, from 3 o'clock. We were speaking to Brian McGilvery. He coached the under-11 A1 hockey team uh, in Surrey. Uh, And during a game in February, um, Mr. McGilvery pulled his team uh, from the ice. uh, And his team had 15 players of South Asian heritage. And during the game, um, uh, the players said they were called monkey, the N-word, and banana by the opposing team. Mr. McGilvery uh, said he talked to his uh, uh, fellow coaches uh, on his side and they agreed uh, that it's best to pull the players in, uh, from the game. Uh, they left the ice and, of course, that led to a 30-day suspension for Mr. McGilvery and the disqualification of the team from the tournament. Uh, he was uh, ultimately suspended by um, by Surrey Minor Hockey Association uh, in March, and now he is disqualified uh, in for participating. Of course, parents and players are not happy. Uh, Mr. McGilvery did speak to me at 3 o'clock along with um, Justin Saison, who is also an assistant coach there, and he also has a son who plays on the team. Here's Mr. McGilvery commenting on what transpired. One of our players, our best player, came and, and said to me and the other coaches that, that he was being called banana. We had gone as a coaching group. There's literally like three feet and just let the coaches know. The coaches said that that was their code word for our player because he was our, their best player. I stated to him along with the other coaches on our team that, you know, that's like not making them feel good. And unfortunately, 
kids are kids, and it escalated from banana to those other words that you said. There's kids on our team on the bench at this time that were crying. They didn't want to go back on the ice. As the head coach, I brought the other coaches in, and as a group, we made the decision that this was unsafe just for their for their mental well-being at the very least. Now, Mr. McGilvery, as he said to me, has been coaching since 1989. That's been 34 years. Now, this may be an issue where a coach doesn't have uh, the power to pull his team. Uh, and this may be a process over common sense to a certain degree. Uh, but Mr. Saison and Mr. McGilvery talked with a little bit about what they like to see for Surrey minor hockey. Take a listen. I think, um, I think who really let us down is BC Hockey. Um, you know, they had their investigation and still found Brian worthy of a 30-day suspension, you know, with all the context that they received. Um, I, I think that they're, they have to get better policies in place. They need better education for the referees and for their staff on how to deal with these situations. I think that there has to be an understanding of just going back to just mutual respect for everybody and where everybody comes from and, and everything else. I think... At the end of the day, as well, what I would like to see is I would have liked to see Surrey Minor Hockey step up a little bit more and have the backing of us as coaches and us as a team. Now, this issue I'm hoping will be uh, dealt with in a speedy way. I know the members of Parliament uh, representing Surrey and even Richmond have spoken out about this, asking for greater information from the Surrey Minor Hockey Association and from BC Hockey. But it does highlight uh, some of the challenges before hockey. Some of them are much bigger and on a national level. We've also heard about uh, Canada Hockey, uh, Hockey Canada, sorry, and some of the challenges that they're going through. Speaking before uh, Committee of Members of Parliament not too long ago, Joining me now to talk a little bit about the challenges before hockey is Scott Rento. He's a Vancouver, well-known Vancouver broadcaster and podcaster. Scott, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Um, I, I'm not going to have you delve into the specifics of this case, and I, and I think things will come out over the next day or two, but let's talk a little bit about the broader issues of, of hockey. Is hockey healthy presently? It's a very, very good question, and I think that probably depends who you talk to. I think it's healthier than it was a year ago. And the reason I say that is that there are a number of people who were called before Parliament, called before a number of different committees, and asked to answer for some of the things that have happened under the Hockey Canada umbrella. And I'm not certainly pinning this on any one individual or or even a specific board member, anything like that. But I would suggest the fact that we are at a point where people are more open about some of the transgressions that have occurred in the past, puts hockey in a better spot, at least knowing and being willing to have the conversation. As difficult as the conversation may be, Mm -hmm. to me, is a step forward as opposed to what has not only been throughout hockey, but through other sports over the course of of certainly my lifetime and and others before me, where it was a culture of shame in many cases. Mm -hmm. You raise a very good point, and and I want to reiterate as well. I mean, we've had uh, athletes just uh, last week talking about a national inquiry, not just into hockey, but a lot of amateur sports and how uh, athletes have been treated, how uh, these sports have been managed. So it's not specific to hockey. But uh, in regards to the broader issue, where do you, when, in, on a minor hockey level for a moment, uh, I'm sure you talk to many parents as well, it is an expensive sport to play uh, in cities like Vancouver. I mean, just there's not enough land. It's expensive land, and we don't have as many hockey rinks as we need. Um, w- how well do you think hockey is being run, or how healthy do you think it is at that minor league level? 
Well, likely across the country, it's still in a pretty good spot. And a lot of that has to do with a national and, to a certain extent, cultural identity of Mm. what we identify with as Canadians. And so there's always going to be that generational pull and that, well, you're Canadian, this is what you do. And that's part of the way you fit in. And it's something that we as Canadians in general have been very proud of to be leaders in hockey over certainly the course of my lifetime and and going back much beyond that. However, the points you raise are extremely valid. And this is why it's very important for Hockey Canada as and, and the sport itself to find a way to be more inclusive, to be more welcoming, because people have more options than they've ever had before. There are certainly sports that are cheaper. We live in a city where the cost of living continues to rise, and many urban centers like ours across Canada face similar economic challenges, and parents are handcuffed to a certain degree simply by the cost. And then if you have concerns about what a child may experience in hockey, that's just another hurdle that parents are going to steer clear of. And it hasn't been widespread, but I think it's been fairly well documented over the last number of years that participation in hockey has either plateaued or declined in certain cases. So it's something that Hockey Canada, just from a business standpoint, let alone some of the other aspects we're talking about, has to take extremely seriously. Mm-hmm. And, and do you think that's going to come at the Hockey Canada level or, or does that have to be at the Surrey minor hockey level, the Coquitlam minor hockey level or at, at the local level here where those changes need to occur? Well, it's both, quite frankly, and that's because they all fall under Hockey Canada's umbrella, and that has been the direction that these associations have followed over the course of their years. But yes, there have to be other ways, and there does likely need to be government involvement as well. All of the issues you raise are are very big ones. Ice time is hard to come by. It's expensive. There are a lot of people in minor sports now that want to make money off minor sports, and it becomes a very, very hard hard road for parents to navigate and when if, if they see other sports and look we've we've seen basketball in this country ex- improve exponentially in the last two decades look at where our, our both of our national soccer programs are on the world stage as far as competition i know there's another organization that's under fire right now for other reasons but i'm just talking about where our athletes have come through we've had multiple MVPs in professional baseball. I can go on and on about, like we said, the NFL draft and a record number of Canadians were drafted this year. So other sports are coming up. That has to come at the expense of something at some point. And likely hockey, because it has enjoyed such a substantial leap forever, is going to suffer a part of that, I would think. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a fascinating conversation. And I, I don't want to, I always remind myself whether it's a 72 hockey series, whether it's a 2010 gold medal match here in Vancouver. I mean, it's given us so many memories. It is, as you say, part of our national fabric. It is a great sport, like any sport or any institution. It must continue to to remain relevant and contemporary and reflect the moment and the time and its people. And I think it's going to get there. But boy, sometimes uh, <laughs> as a sport, it does frustrate you. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, it certainly does. And that comes with some hard truths that need to be exposed. And I think we're going through that process right now. But I think for the bulk of us, and I, you know, I don't want to speak for you, Jazz, but knowing you a little bit, I think I, I can at least put us in the same category as this. We want sport to be something that makes a positive impact on young people's lives and something they carry with them through the course of their, 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 their life. And unless we go through some of these uncomfortable conversations and hard truths, we're not going to be able to get there.
Yeah, absolutely. Scott, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jeff. However, since Elon Musk took over Twitter, users of the social media platform have not been happy because of the way the brash billionaire has managed um, the uh, Twitter at all. They have not been happy whatsoever because of the comments he's made. Now, the latest contender to emerge is a social media site called Blue Sky. It's a lookalike backed by one of Twitter's own co-founders, Jack Dorsey. Now, the platform, which is still invite-only and in beta mode, remains quite small compared with other social media giants. Um, But it has about 50,000 users. Now, its users on its desktop and mobile app have risen from just uh, uh, 15,000 in February to 300,000 in March to 1.5 million globally uh, in April. So you actually have to sign up and they will send you a link to join Blue Sky, but it doesn't happen right away. But it is potentially one of the alternatives to Twitter. Joining me now to talk a little bit about whether Blue Sky will push Twitter aside is Jesse Miller. He is the social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jess. So have we found the Twitter killer? Uh, is this it? Is Blue Sky the, the, uh, the social media app that's going to replace Twitter? I don't think it's going to replace Twitter. It's a very different approach to how we've kind of become comfortable using Twitter. And and I think Blue Sky is a neat concept, very similar to Mastodon in the sense that it's decentralized. You've got servers interacting with one another. The protocol is structured that if you are a Blue Sky user, you could potentially interact anywhere on a decentralized internet. Uh, But uh, when it comes down to the leg hold that Twitter has, I mean, there are... Uh, some big, big hurdles in front of Blue Sky. Now, they've got the tech. They even have uh, some some Twitter backing in the sense of some of the money that they've received. But whether or not this will become the next big thing, who knows? What what is What are some of the challenges before it? Well, a couple of things. When we started using Twitter as a, as a connected society, like we were all very excited about the idea of this. Um, you know, the user has the ability to be the reporter. The user has the ability to tell the world what's happening in front of them. And then we got to those points of memes and, and, and big major events, and whether it be at an award show or whether it be, uh, you know, the, the terrible things that happen around the world to people, this live reporting, Twitter was the spot to go. And so in the past couple of years, when we've seen the decline of Twitter, whether it be about the issues around censorship or the issues around, uh, you know, terms of service violations, when Elon Musk bought Twitter, he had this idea that the, the town square now had to become something where it doesn't matter what you're saying, it should be able to be had on the, on the platform. And with Blue Sky, what I really think is neat here is that you have this idea of bringing people in, but they're doing such a slow roll that you're not going to get those everyday general users. So they want celebrities to come in, they want individuals of, of influence to come in, start shaping some of the content so that people don't burn out too quickly. Now, interestingly enough, we are seeing that there's an increase of users, but those users themselves have already been fairly comfortable on, on a social media platform. They're, they're comfortable producing content and using it as a place where they want to distribute content. And so in the early years of Twitter, Twitter had a huge issue with pornography. It still does in some ways today. But now even Blue Sky is seeing it and saying, hey, we have a problem with how we're supposed to regulate this information if we have creators who are sharing content and we don't really have a terms of service just yet. Uh, in regards to Twitter itself, uh, can it be saved? 
I think it can be if Musk sells it. I mean, that's that's the bigger thing here is that um, his idea of using Twitter as a as a kind of a copycat to what say let's say WeChat, where you can purchase things, you can have aspects of, of commerce occur. Like he has a good idea of what Twitter should become, but I don't think he has the the, the, the trust of individuals who really want to bring that bring it to the forefront. And I mean, I think his reputation just plays too much of a role there. But if you look at Jack Dorsey, Jack Dorsey really built up Twitter from this idea of sending text messages to friends. And that's what really did appeal to people, this idea of quick interaction, quick uh, reply. And then you could kind of build out this following. And I think Blue Sky, you know, as much as they're going to see something very similar in the sense of, you know, get your people to kind of come in and follow along, um, there's always going to be something new. So whether it was Snapchat or Be Real or even in the world of TikTok, this kind of increased idea for all of our attention comes down to what are people saying? And unless there's people there who are verifiable, people who are, are, are very kind of keen to share good information as opposed to misinformation, you're not going to get the user base that I think Twitter has right now. Twitter is kind of filled with just, you know, still good stuff, but a lot of garbage along the way. Mm-hmm. Is it almost impossible for any social media or new, new social media app to be to be able to join are they able to join the big boys and girls in regards to um, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, you know, LinkedIn. I, I think even though yeah, those those brands jazz are even having a hard time retaining their base. I mean, if you think about Facebook, Facebook is for the old people, it's for the neighborhood gripes, it's for Facebook marketplace, it's for misinformation, it's for the person who doesn't want to believe a, a white paper, but they saw something on Facebook. If we look at that shift over the past fifteen years, Facebook itself even recognized, hey, we're going to have a problem hanging on to people. So they bought Instagram. They tried to buy Snapchat. Snapchat has had a huge amount of problems when it comes to this idea of holding users because their users age out. Now, the thing is is that you do still get younger users who come in. So the big dog on the block right now, obviously, is TikTok. And so we've seen that TikTok algorithm kind of dive into what people are using. Blue Sky has to have this idea that they're going to engage their users with not only the targeted content that makes a user want to come back, which I think can be actually quite divisive if you're starting a new social media platform, but the other part being, how do you get people to want to participate in a space that is designed to be a healthy one? And that's where I think Blue Sky actually does have a bit of an edge. If you are a social media user and you want to find good content and you want to read information, you want to absorb information that is put together by people who really value what they do, Blue Sky is going to be a great space. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the hard part here is I think people have to be willing to kind of dive in and say, what does this do for me as opposed to uh, every other person who wants to have an opinion about it? Uh, one of the complaints about Twitter, of course, is moderation, that uh, offensive content isn't taken down. Um, you know, uh, people with very little credibility are given too much prominence, sometimes based on how well their tweets may be doing. Is there any way to... Uh, really do moderation well on these sites because they're used by tens of millions of people. It would, one would argue almost impossible to have that many human beings employed to moderate everything. Can there ever be a point where we reach with these social media outlets um, where we will have some sort of acceptable moderation? Yeah, and that's the thing. What's interesting here is that if you look at a social media platform like Reddit, Reddit is a weird hybrid where you have social media interactions that are traditional in our in our connected world, but you also have the ability to just put something up there and then read the comments. 
And I think what Twitter really did succeed in is getting that interaction between people. You started to kind of see different communities emerge. And what Blue Sky right now is struggling with is that, yes, there is content moderation issues on the beta of this platform, but it's also the question of, like, how do we opt in or opt out? And so Blue Sky could follow approach like Reddit where you say, okay, you know, I don't want to see any not safe for work content and you can opt out of that. So anything that you see in that space would probably be kind of rated PG-13. But the key piece here for me that stands out is that there is a lot of explicit content, whether it be hate-based, whether it be overly, overly sexualized, whatever it be, on a lot of social media platforms. The moderation of that only occurs when somebody reports it. And so Blue Sky right now is choosing to bring people in who aren't really going to rock the boat too much with divisive content, but they are noticing that there are individuals who have already been accepted into that invite-only space who are trying to kind of take a foothold in that space where they say, okay, we're going to be the ones that people find based on explicit pornography or uh, photograph sharing or whatever it be. And that's where Twitter really did struggle in, uh, let's say, 2015, 2016. And then it all kind of went away with the rise of Trump on Twitter. And so in that space now with Blue Sky, what does it mean to allow people in the community to participate wherever our moral kind of um, uh, feelings lie? It's whether or not you want to opt in or opt out. That's where I think they're going to try and struggle to figure out where they want to be in that kind of wide range of social media platforms. Jesse, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Jess. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.